Hello, and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. I'm recording this on the 15th of July, 2020, and we are all, alas, still in the uh, throes of COVID, various stages here in Ontario. We're now in stage three of the recovery, which is kind of a good thing, but it's, uh, it's far from certain this is the end. Many years ago, I found myself in Washington, D.C. I was, at the time, I was with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS. I was speaking at a conference, and one of the other people at the conference was somebody for whom I have, have a great deal of respect, and, and that's Brian Jenkins. Br- Brian Jenkins has been looking at terrorism, oh God, he's been looking at terrorism for a very, very long time. He is a senior advisor to the president of the RAND Corporation, United States. He has written numerous, numerous books uh, on terrorism. He really is one of the doyens or deans of the field, as far as I'm concerned. Former captain of the Green Berets. He's still active after all these years. And I am as pleased as punch to say that Brian has agreed to join me here on the podcast. So, Brian, uh, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you, Phil. I'm looking forward to your questions. So let's let's get right into it then. If there's one thing I know about you, Brian, is that you're you're incredibly good at making interesting statements about terrorism over the years. And one of the ones that I use a lot in my podcast and in my blogs is this statement you made. I don't remember when you made it, but you said terrorism is theater. What did you mean by that then, and what do you mean by it now? Well, to put the date on the citation, I actually wrote that in 1974. 1974. And that was my, my in 1974. Um, I'm 107 years old, <laughs> but um, much of my my writing is really thinking out loud. That is, sharing with the reader what I'm thinking about, how I'm thinking about it, and well, I appreciate the compliments to some of these uh, felicitous phrases that come to me while I'm running or in the shower or wherever. Those are often really an attempt to sum up what may be paragraphs or even pages of of thought, sometimes meandering. And it's an effort, in a sense, to restate in the most succinct fashion possible what I've been spent the last two paragraphs or two pages uh, thinking out loud about. In that particular case, the, the point I was making is that terrorism differed from other modes of conflict, armed conflict. In conventional warfare, the violence is aimed at the opposing forces. And it is an effort to reduce their actual physical capability to continue fighting. Now, it also aims at their morale as well, but the attacks are directed at military targets, fighters, their supply lines, their depots, their weapons emplacements. Terrorism was very different. Terrorism, terrorists could not really take on militarily superior foes on the battlefield. This had to be hit and run violence. It was intended really to create a psychological effect. The actual 
targets of the terrorist attack, the actual victims of the terrorist attack, other than a broad symbolic sense, had little importance to the terrorists. They didn't know who they were actually attacking in, in, in terms of hijacking an airplane or blowing up an airplane. The passengers, uh, the, their identities were immaterial or putting a bomb in a cafe or, or a bomb in a bus. The target of the violence, as opposed to whom the violence was aimed at, the target of the violence was the people watching. Terrorism was aimed at the people watching. And in that sense, terrorism was theater. Deliberately choreographed violence to achieve dramatic effects that would cause people to exaggerate the strength of the terrorists, the importance of their cause, that would create an atmosphere of fear and alarm. And it is that separation between the object of the violence and the target of the violence that really is the definition of terrorism. I really like how you've explained that. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I've been saying for the longest time, not just when I worked for the security service, but since that the, the reaction to terrorism is vastly disproportionate to the actual acts itself and the effect that it has on people. And as somebody who's looked at terrorism as long as you have, Brian, uh, what do you think? And, and this is an unfair question to ask in a podcast because this would take probably books and books and books to reply to. But if you had to sum up what are the most significant developments that you have seen since you started looking at it, and, and, and let's face it, back in 1974, terrorism was not on, at the forefront of anybody's mind at the time in, in, in the way it has been in, in, in the post 9-11 period. So what is it that you think you would say are the top two or three things or perhaps a little more that have developed over that, that time period when it comes to terrorism? You know, you're, you're absolutely correct. Terrorism was very different then. We were just seeing the emergence of this phenomenon in the cities of South America, in, this, in the countries of, of Western Europe, the struggle in Northern Ireland, the emergence of groups like uh, the Red Army faction in Germany or the Red Brigades in Italy. We were also seeing at, at the same time uh, a dramatic increase in terrorist violence emanating from the Middle East in terms of hijackings, sabotage of airliners. So this was really the, the, the front edge of the phenomenon at, at the time. In, in terms of what has occurred since, in, in terms of major issues, I, I would underscore several. The first would be the diffusion of terrorist tactics throughout the world. Let's take took place through the 1970s, and it still, it, it still takes place. It's both by imitation and by inspiration. That is, as terrorists in one part of the world uh, see an innovation, a tactical innovation, or a new set of targets being attacked, they will, if they perceive it as successful, they will incorporate it in their own repertoire of, of tactics. So the diffusion of terrorism is one. The second would, would be the escalation of, of terrorism over the decades. 
the earliest incidents of terrorism, the worst incidents, in, involved fatalities measured in the tens. In the 1970s, uh, the worst incidents were 20 dead or 30 dead. Uh, in the 1980s, this ascended to the hundreds. So we were seeing terrorist attacks with 200 dead, 300 dead. That remained the upper limit in the 1990s, but the frequency of these large-scale attacks increased. Then, of course, on 9-11, it crossed over into the thousands. Nearly 3,000 people were killed in the 9-11 attacks. So what we were seeing is an order of magnitude increase about every 15 years up to that point. And that led to the presumption that the upward trajectory would continue and that we had to anticipate in the future, uh, as we looked forward in the, in the dark shadow of 9-11, uh, terrorist attacks that would involve tens of thousands or potentially even hundreds of thousands of casualties. Now, those, uh, those volumes of casualties could be achieved only with the use of uh, biological weapons or nuclear weapons. It would even be hard to ascend to those totals uh, using chemical weapons. Uh, but that became a presumption. Instead of continued vertical escalation, however, what we saw uh, brings me to my next broad development. We saw horizontal escalation. And that really reflected how terrorists were being recruited. As, as we, in response to 9-11, the entire world in response to 9-11, put increasing pressure on those responsible, uh, on, on these organizations, they were no longer able to mount the kind of centrally directed strategic strikes and instead taking advantage of the internet exhorted homegrown terrorists to carry out uh, attacks on behalf of the cause. And as I say, so instead of more 9-11s or even more, uh, even deadlier 9-11s, what we are seeing is a proliferation of low-level attacks carried out by individuals inspired by terrorist ideologies, but operating with limited capabilities. It was really moving us toward something that we might label pure terrorism, that is completely random violence as a conveyor for ideological and often individual discontents. Probably the last major development I would, I would point to would be the normalization of terrorism. Back to the early 1970s, the great effort was not only to uh, prevent individual acts of terrorism, but to ensure that it would not become a normalized behavior. These tactics would not slide over into the international domain and become 
a routinized uh, component of armed conflict, uh, a new mode of warfare. In fact, they have, and, and it, it's difficult to, to conceive of armed conflicts today that do not have a terrorist component uh, going forward. Those would be, I think, the, the biggest ones, the diffusion of tactics, the vertical escalation, the horizontal escalation, and the normalization of terrorism. That, that's fascinating, Brian. It, it's an interesting look back, and, and I, I agree with everything that you said. I want to pick up on one that you mentioned, and you said about how in the post 9-11 period, we'd seen this orders of magnitude change in the numbers of victims of terrorist attacks from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, etc. And, and I can absolutely agree with you. I think in the wake of 9-11, working in the security service, for a lot of us, it was the feeling of when's the other shoe going to drop? In other words, when are we going to see something either same size or bigger than that? And, and we haven't. And thank God for that. You wrote in 2008 a book that is entitled, Will Terrorists Go Nuclear? And I think this is kind of picking up on what you just said. Because in fact, if they did go nuclear, we would see attacks with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of casualties. So a very simple question, Brian, that I'm sure is a very simple answer. Uh, why haven't they gone nuclear? What, what, what's what been the obstacle to prevent groups from requiring nuclear weapons to achieve those attacks that would have catastrophic levels of casualties? It's always harder to explain why things don't happen than to explain why they do. And there are candidate reasons offered why. Uh, when I was writing the book, I was mindful of the fact that there were many predictions in, in the post 9-11 environment of nuclear terrorism. You're right. It was an assumption, to use the famous overused phrase now, not if, but when. People were willing to put parameters on the when at the time, and some forecast that the likelihood of a terrorist use of a nuclear weapon in the United States that would occur within the next 10 years. Another prediction put it actually at five years. I was curious about this and, and in the course of writing the book, asked those I regarded as experts, and these were not the pundits on, on, the pundits on television, these were not the doomsayers, these were people who were either in the intelligence community, like yourself, uh, people who were at the nuclear labs, people who really understood nuclear weapons here in the United States, as well as in Europe and, and other places. And what I was really going after is this presumption 9-11 had this, this extraordinary effect. It, it really fundamentally altered our perceptions of plausibility. Intelligence had failed to forecast an attack like this. It was unprecedented in scale. And whereas some of these scenarios, like nuclear terrorism, might have been regarded as far-fetched the day before 9-11 became the operative presumption the day after. Again, back to the phrase, not if, but when. So I wanted to know what really the, the, the people who knew a lot more about the details of this than I did, how they felt about it. 
And so I asked them a simple question. It was a two question survey. The, the first question was, what is the probability that terrorists in the next 10 years will detonate a nuclear device somewhere in the world? Now, I'm not talking about a dirty bomb. I'm not talking about the dispersal of radioactive material. I'm talking about detonating a nuclear, a, a, a nuclear device. What was interesting about the answers is that they ranged from one, that is virtual certainty, all the way down to one in 10 million. The experts had a great variety of views on this. And what was even more interesting about these answers, and there were hundreds of answers, is that there was no distribution curve. These were just really flatly distributed across, across the spectrum. And that was the first finding. But the second one, which comes closer to answering your question, was, well, why haven't they? I asked that question, and I said, I don't want paragraphs on this, just a simple, why not? Why haven't we seen it yet? The answers fell into two broad categories. One was that the terrorists themselves probably would look at it and think it wasn't suitable to their struggle it didn't fit, it was inappropriate, it was politically dangerous, it was immoral for whatever combination of considerations. It was a matter of a thoughtful self-imposed constraint. The second category of answers was simply, it's harder to do than people imagine. Mm -hmm. They don't have fissile material. Despite gaps in security, it is still extraordinarily difficult to obtain fissile material. And even if one has fissile material, it is a complicated process to do it. Now, I know there were all sorts of articles about any lunatic can build an atomic bomb in their garage. The bright graduate student uh, knows the principles. But the point the experts made was, Knowing the theory is not the same as building a device. Those were the two. Now, interesting point. It's, of course, possible to arrive at an average or a median, even on a flat distribution of answers. For if I took all of the answers and I tried to average them, the likelihood was about 10%. That's pretty scary. People, I mean, we've gone past the 2018 10-year deadline already, so, so that's good. But if I divided the Americans from the others in the world, the average for the Americans was 20%, and the average for the rest of the world, which was probably heavily weighted toward Europeans, was about 1%. The second difference was fascinating, and that is, Americans tended to be weighed heavily on the, they don't have the capability yet, and the yet was frequently part of the answer, whereas uh, the Europeans were far more inclined to answer that it was a matter of self-imposed constraints. 
That that's a really interesting difference. I, I suppose that the bottom line is is that you know they haven't resorted to this particular weapon for the reasons that you cited, and I, I think the bottom line is sometimes that rocket science is indeed rocket science. And you know we've seen groups experiment with chemical weapons to you know varying degrees. I'm showing Rikyo in Japan in the '90s. This doesn't stop, of course, a lot of bad movies from being made, right? How many? I mean, how many James Bond plots involve terrorists with nuclear briefcases, kind of thing? Um, it certainly has is is joined the world of fiction. I, I want to move on to, to, to another question, Brian. Um, you served time in the military, uh, you know, before you sort of turned your attention to terrorism. Do you have any views on the ubiquity and the frequency of this term "war on terrorism"? A term I particularly don't like, and wrote a whole book why I don't like it. What are your views on viewing this struggle as a war on terrorism? First of all, it's a cultural characteristic in American politics to declare war on phenomenon we don't like. So we've had wars on poverty, we've had wars on drugs, we've had wars on on inflation. Uh, we tend to be bellicose in our rhetoric and declare wars on on a lot of things. But aside from that, I understand how the term war on terrorism has turned out not to be a useful framework. But I have to admit here that in the immediate wake of 9-11, I myself wrote an essay, and an essay that took the position, this time has to be different. And in that sense, I in, in that article, I essay, I, I, I argued for a war on terrorism. Now, what did I mean by that? It was not a war on terrorism, a phenomenon. The original term used by the State Department, and this was a subject of much discussion back in the 1970s, the term we applied was combating terrorism. That was a useful term because combating terrorism meant that we were going to try to prevent this from becoming a a routinized phenomenon, an acceptable mode of conflict. But the term combating also implies an enduring task. The war, put that in quotes, that I had in mind in late September 2001 reflected something different. I thought we had to respond quickly to those responsible for the 9-11 attacks. We had no idea at that time how many more 9-11s might be in the pipeline. If left unmolested, this organization would come after us again, possibly with more and potentially even worse attacks. So action had to be taken. We were going to have to mobilize a national effort. This would involve intelligence. It would involve law enforcement. It would involve diplomacy. And it would involve military operations aimed at those responsible for the attack. So it was not a war on terrorism, and I don't think the global war on terror was a, was a, was a useful phrase. It was, it, it was something specifically directed at degrading the operational capabilities and ultimately destroying those responsible for 9-11. So that would prevent another possible attack. And as I say, I saw military operations as part of that equation. What we had already 
on occasion, responded to either state-sponsored terrorism or to even al-Qaeda terrorist attacks with military force. What was different about those responses is that they were meant to deter. That is, following the bombings of the American embassies in Africa, we fired missiles at al-Qaeda training centers in Afghanistan. And there had been previous occasions when we had used military force in response to terrorism. Those all involved was, however, were, were single strikes. That is, the terrorists attacked us, we responded, and then waited to see what they would do next. And if they struck, we would strike. To me, that was not deterrence, that was building a relationship. <laughs> and I thought this time had to be different. This time, it is not a matter of a single response, a single retaliatory attack, but rather a continuing campaign without waiting for further attacks to disrupt and degrade the capabilities of this organization. It would be a campaign aimed at al-Qaeda. And that put it to me more in a context of war. Now, I suppose I also carry some baggage as, as a Vietnam veteran. And I thought, if we are going to put young men in harm's way, send soldiers into combat, and today young men and young women, that we owe it to them to frame what they do as an expression of our national will. Declaring wars has become a kind of a quaint exercise. But I wanted some formal expression, I argued for this, by the government reflecting the will of the people that we were going to make this a national undertaking. We didn't have a declaration of war, but we had a congressional authorization for the use of military force directed against those responsible for 9-11. And that, to me, was an appropriate expression. And, 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 and that's why I, I used the term at that time. Now, the negative aspects of that turned out it implied that we were using only military force, and that was not true. The major achievements of the post-9-11 era has been the unprecedented cooperation of the world's intelligence services and law enforcement organization. And that goes beyond our traditional allies, beyond the, the small circle of, of members of NATO. It, it really includes some unlikely partners who see an advantage in exchanging information on terrorism. And I can say from the American, the U.S. perspective, that that has been critical in preventing a number of terrorist attacks. And that cooperation has to be preserved. There was also in the United States itself and in each of the other countries, a robust law enforcement effort to identify individuals and to uncover and prevent terrorist plots. 
And that has had a measure of success. If we look at the levels of violence that were anticipated, levels of violence that our foes were capable of, then we look at the actual level of violence. There have been tragic cases. Every death is a tragedy, but it has been well below what we were an anticipating, and, and, and that is a success. The term war, I think, is useless. The other downside of war is that the global war on terror itself was expanded to include a lot of things that went beyond the original focus in a spasm of hubris. It expanded far beyond, at least what I thought would be our primary objective. The other thing is that wars to a Western audience, wars especially to an American audience, are a finite undertaking. There's a beginning and an end. And in that sense, uh, looking for the, uh, uh, the victory as traditionally defined, looking for that end point is something we are not likely to find. This does become, even if military force is involved, it does become closer to a law enforcement continuing mission. And that is no one expects the New York Police Department at any date in the future to say, well, we have defeated crime, there's no more crime, so we're demobilizing the police force. Efforts to contain terrorism, prevent terrorism will continue. And in that sense, uh, the term war has also been unfortunate. You made a lot of good points there, Brian, and many of which I, I concur. And as I said, I, I picked this up in my fourth book, An End to the War on Terrorism. And obviously, I have a very biased view as a former security intelligence. And I, But I do agree with you that this was a sustained effort. It, it, the Americans and their allies had no choice after 9-11, but it has definitely morphed into directions that have been far from helpful. And we've seen on occasion, as you mentioned, some of our countries with whom we have cooperated, who were not traditional allies, have also taken advantage of the war on terrorism, like the Russians, like the Chinese. What China is doing in, in Xinjiang province, they would call that a war on terrorism against the Uyghur Muslims. And despite the fact that there are Uyghurs who are terrorists, the vast majority of the people in Xinjiang province are not terrorists and yet are being treated as such. Lastly, Brian, you know, you, you've had a very, very long career, both at RAND and, and sort of in the, in the sort of think tank world, in addition to your military experience in the United States, how would you typify or describe the relationship between my old world, the security service world, and, and your world? Is, is, it, is it going well? Is it getting better? Is it, is it getting worse? How do we, as two communities that have a lot of knowledge, a lot of things to share, and yet there are obviously, there are obstacles, things like security clearances, sensitive information, etc., how can we make that relationship as best as it possibly can be in, in a Western sense? It, it's a terrific question, and I must say I'm grappling with it now. Uh, we are in the United States in unique circumstances. And by the way, I am ferociously nonpartisan. I don't in any sense mean these remarks to be interpreted in a political sense. But one of the problems that has been apparent over the years that gets in the way of a relationship between the think tanks and government, it really isn't so much of a problem between think tanks and 
intelligence analysts, between researchers at places like the RAND Corporation and, and people in the intelligence community or in the Pentagon or the State Department. It is rather the decline of facts. Uh, RAND did what I thought was one of its most provocative pieces, and, and, and the title of the piece is called Truth Decay. We have come into a world in which facts are devalued, narratives, often politically driven narratives or agenda driven narratives, take precedence over the interpretation of facts, in which there is not truth, but there are alternate truths. Now, to an intelligence analyst who is pouring through material and attempting to discern patterns and reach conclusions, uh, a process not different from that of a researcher at, at, a, at a think tank like RAND, looking at data, looking at information and attempting to arrive at policy relevant conclusions for facts themselves, for something approaching the truth to be dismissed as irrelevant, unimportant, or to be challenged by invented facts is a jarring, is a jarring experience, and it impedes the relationship. I'm not saying that facts always lead you to precisely the same conclusion. And you will know from your own experience that within the intelligence communities, there are debates about how things should be, in, be interpreted, about the meaning of a particular piece of information or uh, the pattern that appears. I'm not saying that there are not differences of opinion. There are always those and they're valuable. Uh, they're a way of honing our analytical skills and, 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 and reaching conclusions. And sometimes there are an A assumption or a B assumption uh, that we move into. But they're based upon you know, some iron stakes in the ground that we can agree upon. Okay, this is a fact. You may look at it differently from, from how I look at it, but it's a fact. That has that has disappeared. And, and the difficulty is in that kind of an environment, it's extremely difficult to have a dialogue because there, there is no common ground. One is something which is based in the real world, something which can be treated as, as factual and a, an invented world, a fantasy world, a world of conspiracy theories, a world that is driven by agendas. That's the principal problem we face. It's, it's not think tank difficulties with intelligence community. It is fact-based analysis versus fantasy assertions. Wow. <laughs> that is a very uh, unfortunate and, and alarmingly depressing, alarmingly accurate way of looking at this. And, and, I, and I couldn't uh, agree with you more. I, I know in my time in, in Canada, certainly... 
you know, people like yourselves and other Bruce Hoffman and many other academics from around the world, we would bring in and have conversations about the very things you're talking about. We couldn't actually show them the facts, but we, we could we could argue about facts. We could argue about the meaning of facts were. And I've always seen this as a very a very beneficial relationship because there are strengths in, in, in either, either quarters. Brian, this has been uh, an absolutely fascinating conversation. I, I think I can sense there's a part two coming up because there are a lot of topics that you touched upon that I think we need to, to, to broach and to go into far more detail. And so I, I have a sneaking suspicion I'll be inviting you back. But I just want to thank you very, very much for taking the time. You truly are uh, one of the... Uh, I would say the leading scholars on terrorism and have been for the better part of, well, you're not 107, but but you have been for a very, very long time. <laughs> and, and, and I do want to thank you for taking the time for joining me on the podcast today from, from California. M- much appreciated, Brian. It's been a great honor. Thank you. And I'll look forward to a second round. So that was my conversation with Brian Jenkins. I'd love to hear what you think of, of what he had to say. It's based on, as I said, decades of experience, and he truly is someone whose opinion should be listened to. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com, or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like this content and want to get it to your inbox free of charge every morning, simply go to my website, www.borealisthreatenedrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. Give me your email address. You'll get a daily digest to your inbox free of charge. Podcasts, blogs, media interviews, etc., etc. I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe. Stay safe.